There was a very interesting map that was on display in the British Museum in London. It was an old mariner's chart drawn in 1525, outlining the North American coastline and adjacent waters. The cartographer made some intriguing notations on areas of the map that represented regions that had yet been explored. He wrote things like this. Here be giants. Here be fiery serpents or scorpions. And here be dragons. Now, eventually the map came into the possession of Sir John Franklin, a British explorer in the early 1800s. And scratching out the fearful inscriptions, he wrote these words across the map. Here is God. Here's God. We're going to take a look today at the Apostle Paul's first sermon that, I don't know if it's the first sermon he gave, it's the first sermon we have recorded from him in the book of Acts. And it's really a declaration of, here is Christ. Now, one might be prone to think that when you consider the sin in the garden by Adam and Eve, that that was the end of mankind, that that was the end of what God wanted to do with humankind. One might think that when you look at the sin in the world under the time of Noah, that mankind would never recover. One might think that when the people of God were in bondage in Egypt, that God was not going to make good on his promise to his people that they would never get a land for themselves. Or when the kingdom was split into two, Israel and Judah, maybe that was a signal that God also was not going to establish his people into a nation. One might think when Jesus was beaten and crucified that that was the end of the plan for a Messiah. Here be rebellion. Here be sin. Here be failure of God's people. Here be a crucifixion. And then God flashes across the pages of history. Here is God in the flesh. Here is my son, Jesus Christ. Here is salvation in the middle of all that. It's a good reminder, I think, to any of us that whatever befalls us, whatever circumstances you might find yourself in, that God is still there working. You may not feel it. You may not see it with your fleshly eyes. You may not know it but it doesn't change the fact that he's still sovereign, still working. That's essentially the message that Paul has given. Here is God. Let's take a look at our passage, Acts 13, verses 13 through 25. Let's all stand. Now, Paul and his companions set sail from Paphos and came to Perga in Pamphylia. And John left them and returned to Jerusalem. But they went on from Perga and came to Antioch and Pisidia. And on the Sabbath day, they went into the synagogue and sat down. After the reading from the law and the prophets, the rulers of the synagogue sent a message to them saying, Brothers, if you have any word of exhortation for the people, say it. So Paul stood up and motioning with his hand said, Men of Israel and you who fear God, listen. The God of this people, Israel, chose our fathers and made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt. 
and with uplifted arm, he led them out of it. And for about 40 years, he put up with them in the wilderness. And after destroying seven nations in the land of Canaan, he gave them their land as an inheritance. All this took about 450 years. And after that, he gave them judges until Samuel the prophet. Then they asked for a king, and God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin, for 40 years. And when he had removed him, he raised up David to be their king, of whom he testified and said, I have found in David, the son of Jesse, a man after my heart, who will do all my will. Of this man's offspring, God has brought to Israel a savior, Jesus, as he promised. Before his coming, John had proclaimed a baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel. And as John was finishing his course, he said, what do you suppose that I am? I am not he. No, but behold, after me, one is coming, the sandals of whose feet I am not worthy to untie. Now, Paul and his companions set sail from Paphos and came to Perga in Pamphylia. And John left them and returned to Jerusalem. So our first verse gives us some geographical direction and it also clues us in on a relational problem. And if you view the map behind me, uh, we can see Paphos on the island of Cyprus. If you head north in the Mediterranean Ocean, you see the three missionaries of Paul, Barnabas, and John Mark, where they arrive at Perga. It's the southern coast of, of Asia, Asia Minor, the Roman province of Pamphylia. Now, this area, this low-lying area, was impoverished, malaria-ridden lowland. In fact, some have surmised that Paul contracted malaria here, the kind of malaria that causes severe headaches. If you've ever had migraines, you know how difficult it can be to live with such a thing. He actually wrote about being very sick in Galatians 4, 13, and that area is the Galatian area, the region northeast of, of Perga. Now, frankly, we don't know for sure what he had. We just know that he was really sick when he arrived in Galatia. And it was while in Perga that John Mark decided to leave Paul and Barnabas and head to Jerusalem. No reason is given as to why John Mark left, but that certainly has not stopped others from conjecturing. Uh, some suggest it was the rough journey ahead through the mountains to get to that Galatian area. Maybe he just wasn't up to that. Others say he was upset that Paul was assuming more of a leadership role, kind of usurping his cousin Barnabas now. Maybe he was upset at that. Some said maybe he was upset that Paul was now ministering to the Gentiles. John Mark, being a Jew, didn't think maybe that was right. Again, we don't know, but we do know this. It was a serious enough problem that three years later, when they would travel on a second missionary journey, Paul does not want John Mark to go. We read this in Acts 15. And after some days, Paul said to Barnabas, let us return and visit the brothers in every city 
where we proclaim the word of the Lord and see how they are. Now Barnabas wanted to take with them John called Mark, but Paul thought best not to take with them one who had withdrawn from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. And there arose a sharp disagreement so that they separated from each other. Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus. But Paul chose Silas and departed, having been commended by the brothers to the grace of the Lord. Mark's reasons for leaving seemed invalid to Paul. And in the apostles' mind, that disqualified him from traveling with him on this second journey. Now, perhaps time allowed Paul's heart to soften towards John Mark because some 15 years later, he wrote to Timothy to bring Mark with him to visit Paul in jail because, and I quote, Mark is very useful in serving me. So something changed. You know, the most difficult aspect of ministry is not the physical hardships, the long hours. For most of us, type A, that just feeds us. <laughs> 60, 70 hour work weeks, that's no problem. But the bigger issues are the emotional and relational ones. People who pledge their undying loyalty and desert the work. People who you thought were friends quickly become self-described enemies. And what we have to read in these verses is that these differences did not eventually win out. For that, we're thankful. The combination of time and forgiveness can change a perspective. It can soften a heart. It can... It can make differences seem smaller in light of eternity and grace. See, to, to maintain unity is a work for gladiators in the relational arena. Those of you who've been able to maintain unity on a long haul in an organization know from whence I speak. It's difficult work, and it feels like a battle for the soul as you wrestle with pride and as you try to wrestle perceptions to the ground. And only by the power of God through his spirit and by the grace of God can, can that kind of work be done. And frankly, many do not have the stomach for resolution. The interference created between Paul and Barnabas existed over a period of time, caused them to be separated. It's sad to see, but it happened. And I suppose if any of us want to cut that off at the pass, my only recommendation is we have to do whatever we can 
to humble ourselves, to admit our faults, and to be proactive in resolution. But sometimes, you just have to live with relationships that are unsettled. It's not fun. It doesn't make one happy. But it is what it is. I've always hated hearing that. It is what it is. But it's a way of saying it's just reality. You do what you can to make it right. You humble yourself. You admit your faults. You want resolution, and the other person doesn't budge. Sometimes that happens. And if that be the case, then all that I can beg you to do is not let pride and insolence creep into your heart. Verse 14, but they went on from Perga and came to Antioch and Pisidia, and on the Sabbath day they went into the synagogue and sat down. So traveling through what, from Perga into this other area that's 3,600 feet above sea level, and they're traveling about 100 miles to Antioch and Pisidia. Now remember, there are multiple cities, over 10 cities called Antioch. So you often have the region that that particular Antioch is in to distinguish it from the other Antiochs. So this was Antioch in Pisidia. And the region, by the way, is what we now know as Turkey. But verse 15, after the reading from the law and the prophets, the rulers of the synagogue sent a message to them saying, brothers, if you have any word of encouragement for the people, say it. See, the synagogue was like a, a community center. It was a school. It was a judicial center, a social gathering place. It was a, the center of worship all wrapped up into one. It was kind of like the way the church was in early America. Uh, that's why the, the, the churches were the place to receive news in, in early America. That's why that in, in the revolution, much of what went on in terms of gathering the troops was done through the churches. If one were to make contact with the community, where's the place you'd start? You would go to the synagogue, right? It'd be the natural place to begin. And Paul and Barnabas sit down, and they hear a reading. They, they hear a reading from the first five books of the Old Testament, of the law, and then they hear the, the majority, the rest of the Old Testament, called the, the prophets, a reading from each of those sections. And after that reading, apparently some synagogue uh, messenger asked Paul and Barnabas if they have something to share. And they asked for a word of encouragement. It means to make one stronger. And I've been in some situations where I, I show up just to maybe enjoy the event, and then I'm asked to speak right on the spot. You have to be ready to, to give a word. I remember being a, a senior in high school, visiting a church in North Carolina that we were to do a a vacation Bible school in, sat down to enjoy the service, and the preacher points to me and says, you're giving the sermon today. All right. So Paul stood up and motioning with his hand said, men of Israel and you who fear God, listen. The God of this people Israel chose our fathers and made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt. And with uplifted arm, he led them out of it. And for about 40 years, he put up with them in the wilderness. And after destroying seven nations in the land of Canaan, he gave them their land as an inheritance. So now Paul is addressing two groups in this congregation. The first was the natural-born Jews. The second were those not born into Judaism. They might 
might have been Greek-speaking Jews who had converted to Judaism or just those interested in Judaism. And as we've discussed before, we know that Paul made it kind of his strategy to go to the Jew first. But it was that second group that actually responded in a much more positive fashion than the first group of the Jews. Paul then proceeds to reach back into Jewish history, much like Stephen did in Acts 7. And you might remember that Stephen preached a sermon going back and talking about the patriarchs and all. Now, when Stephen did that, he did that to pinpoint the rebelliousness of God's people. And he was wanting to lay at their feet their responsibility for where they were in rejecting Christ. But when, when Paul goes back and gives this history, he does it for a completely different reason. He's putting the focus upon God and God's continued faithfulness to his people culminating in the coming of Christ. Now, you can kind of see this just by looking at the verbs that are used in the passage. For instance, verse 17 says, God chose the fathers. God made his people great. God led them out of Egypt. Verse 18, God put up with the rebellion of his people. Verse 19, God gave them land. Verse 20, God gave them judges. Verse 21, God gave them Saul. Verse 22, God raised up David. Verse 24, God brought to Israel a savior. The history of Israel leads to the coming of Christ. Paul says God made his people great even while they were in captivity by increasing their numbers. His uplifted hand speaks of God's power and majesty as he led them out of the bondage of Egypt. You know, Pharaoh was saying, no, I'm not going to let them go. But God's outstretched arm worked in that situation and freed his people despite what earthly leaders had in mind. God fed them manna and kept them so that they would not perish. He cared for his people. God remained faithful when they were in the wilderness. Even though his people would go through prolonged seasons of unbelief, God gave them a land by overthrowing nations who inhabited the land of Canaan. He remained faithful. You know, perhaps you're going through a season or you went through a season and you're very disappointed in yourself for how you responded. You, there's a lot of shame and you feel like, you know what, God just doesn't have much use for me. I really don't think that I can be forgiven of that. But Paul wrote elsewhere to Timothy. He said, God remains faithful even when we are what? Faithless. Now look, you can choose to focus on your failure or you can choose to focus upon the faithfulness of God, the faithfulness of Christ. We are all familiar with failure. 
we all could focus on that and, and just wallow in the shame. But God has remained faithful. All this took about 450 years, and after that he gave them judges until Samuel the prophet. Then they asked for a king, and God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin, for 40 years. So it's kind of a round number, 450 years, that covers the time from the sojourn in Egypt to the possession of Canaan. 400 years were spent in Egypt, 40 additional years of the journey through the desert to Canaan, and about 10 years in conquering the land, thus 450 years. Now, during that time, there was not an official king. So God provided leaders called judges to give protection and guidance. Then Samuel comes along as a prophet, and the people beg for a king. And even though Saul was not the kind of king that God had desired for Israel, he grants their wish. But that doesn't mean that in the midst of all that, that God had lifted his hand. It didn't mean that God had left, quite the contrary. And when he had removed him, verse 22, him being Saul, he raised up David to be their king, of whom he testified and said, I have found in David, the son of Jesse, a man after my heart who will do all my will. Of this man's offspring, God has brought to Israel a savior, Jesus, as he promised. Before his coming, John had proclaimed a baptism of repentance to the people of Israel. And as John was finishing his course, he said, what do you suppose that I am? I am not he, no, but behold, after me, one is coming, the sandals of whose feet I am not worthy to untie. Again, Paul is recognizing God working through history and the culmination of a Messiah. After Moses led his people out, after Saul, after Samuel, God raised up David. It says that David was a man after God's own heart. Well, does that mean that David was perfect? No. It does mean that David, when he sinned, he tried to be quick to confess. His his heart was sensitized to that sin. And he did sin. And he had some whoppers, right? In contrast to Saul, David confessed his sins quickly, where Saul is a very self-willed man. Hard to see the sin in his life. But David, you could read Psalm 32, Psalm 51, kind of gives you an idea of what he would go through when he sinned. The tremendous guilt that weighed down upon him, that even sapped his physical strength. He felt the weight of his sin. And God would move him to confess and repent. That's the only way that that weight could be lifted. Oh, I know many of us try to do a lot of different things to get rid of the weight of sin, right? Try to anesthetize the the whole process. But let me tell you, the, the, the pathway to getting rid of the weight of sin is humbling ourselves before a holy God in confession and repentance. And God forgives us. And then our hearts and our minds can be free from that shame and guilt 
as we recognize them, the finished work of Christ being applied to us. It's not that counseling is bad, reading a book is bad, but they're only as good as they focus on those things in dealing with sin, confession, and repentance. David received a special promise from God, a promise of a descendant who would be God's own son, who would establish a king that would last forever and listen to some of these promises that were given from the psalmist. My steadfast love I will keep for him forever and my covenant will stand firm for him. Psalm 89:28. His offspring shall endure forever. His throne as long as the sun before me. Like the moon it shall be established forever. A faithful witness in the skies. Psalm 89, 36 and 37. The Lord swore to David a sure oath from which he will not turn back. One of the sons of your body I will set on your throne, Psalm 132.11. And then in Jeremiah 23.5, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he will reign as king and deal wisely, and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. Verse 23 of Acts 13 notes that the, the promised descendant of David was Jesus, the Savior. The promise to David was the whole point. It was the bullseye of Paul's sermon. Luke, the writer of Acts, also references this truth in his gospel. He said he will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father, David and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. All that the scripture says about salvation lies in that term, Savior. Christ rescues us from the punishment of sin. He rescues us from eternal danger. And he continues to keep us spiritually safe. That is a savior in every sense of the word. And nobody else fits that bill other than Jesus Christ. God preserved the line of David to usher in Jesus. And he is now proclaimed as our savior. Again, this broad stroke throughout history leading up to Jesus. God was in control the entire way, even though in seasons it looked like things had just kind of gotten away from God. Not the case. John the Baptist was the last in line of the Old Testament prophets who proclaimed the coming of the Messiah. He linked together the period of the Old Testament history in Israel to the period of this new community, this new covenant, this new church. In Christ, John was finishing his task and was content to take a a humble role in relation to Christ. He made sure that people knew he was not capable of being the Messiah. He was not capable of being a savior. He was a mere mortal, a mere man. John did not even deem himself worthy 
to untie the shoes of Jesus. That would be a task too great for a slave like me. There's something to be said about a man who serves Christ who has that kind of attitude, who says, I'm not worthy, but God's grace is great. There's something to be said about the path that a man makes when he requires that he gets attention, when he requires that he gets accolades, when the pride is just overflowing, and maybe he masks it real well, but he uses the church as a way to fill his insecurities. And while God may use that man in spite of that, I don't think God will bless that man personally when that stuff is done out of pride. We see it time after time. It, it boggles my mind that God uses men who are, you know, and churches grow and the pastors are having affairs, long-standing affairs, and I'm like, how can that happen? It happens because God is great. Now, God will deal with that man, but God is still great. And he will work in spite of us. And I remind myself of that because I can't put myself in a position, well, I'm not that bad. God will use me because I'm better than that. And I'm thinking, no, that's actually pride. Because I'm not fit. Because I do not have what it takes outside of what God has provided me. I'm not better than the next one. And my job is to humble myself before a holy God, to allow the Spirit of God to fill me, to use me. That doesn't make me better than you. That just means I have a different job than yours. Saying that he was unfit to untie his shoe is just a vivid way of pointing out the deity of Christ the preeminence of the Messiah. We need to stay right there. Hey, you, you, get, you get a flash of pride that comes across, you need to immediately think of a towel in a basin and wash some feet. You need to immediately think that you're not even fit to untie the shoe. Those are the pictures you need to keep in your head. Instead of, I'm up on the stage, look at me. I can finish that song for you if you'd like. <laughs> there are many verses. <laughs> Unfortunately. John preached repentance and baptism to all the people of Israel. Jews of, in that day were very familiar with baptism as a part of converting to Judaism John is proclaiming baptism as a sign of conversion to Christ. He's saying, hey, you Israel are in need of this Jesus. He's calling them to repentance. You are in need of a savior, of the forgiveness of your sins. You rejected him, but he's offering you grace. He's offering you a way of salvation. So as a sign of that repentance, there was baptism. Again, 
history through John pointing straight to Christ and his salvation. Listen, if God worked out his sovereign will and kept his promise with Israel under the old covenant, how much more will God keep his promises under the new? Hebrews speaks to this. I'll just read you one passage. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise, the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Maybe you're in a situation where you feel abandoned. Maybe you're in a situation where you feel like the the circumstances are overwhelming you. My dear friend, we have an anchor for the soul and one who gives us hope. And listen, no matter how you feel, no matter how much you have blown it, it doesn't change the fact that he is there, that he is available, and if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, that he's still working in your life. And if you're not a believer in Jesus Christ, then you know what? He is wooing you, perhaps even right now, and he'd like nothing more than to have a relationship with you. Let's pray.